there, folks. I'm Alyssa Corman with the Mail Tribune, and you're listening to The Archive, where I share the news with you from 100 years ago in 1919 from the splendid city of Medford and Jackson County at large. Well, the new year is officially well underway, and it has brought with it some terrific stories. However, the end of 1918 brought some pretty interesting news as well, and I figured it would be worth reviewing some of the most important events to cross our headlines that I was unable to share previously. As you may remember, we were fiercely embattled in war against the Germans, experienced the worst illness epidemic on record, and battled bootleggers here at home. In all these things, we, the people of Jackson County, we Americans, came through victorious. Of course, there's no surprise there. In the month of October 1918, Spanish influenza made its way not only to our city, but was spreading over the nation as a whole like wildfire. But we here in Medford came through all right in the end, thanks to swift and decisive action taken up by Mayor Gates, who early in the game put a strict ban upon all gatherings in the city, as we heard in this story. To prevent the further spread of the dread Spanish influenza, of which four positive cases are known to exist in Medford, and many others are suspected, the city authorities clamped down the lid this noon to go into effect Monday morning, October 14, 1918, ordering the closing of churches, theaters, schools, and all public meetings and gatherings of every description. This drastic rule will be in effect until all danger of the epidemic getting a foothold in Medford is passed. The action was not decided on until the local situation had been thoroughly canvassed by Mayor Gates and Dr. Pickle. Every physician in the city was consulted, and the opinion was unanimous that every precaution should be taken before it was too late. A number of cases and suspected cases were also reported from various parts of the county. New reports of the alarming spread of the disease throughout the United States and the large death rate accompanying also had a great influence in deciding the local officials to act. A telephone message from Dunsmere yesterday afternoon stating that there were 30 cases in that city and that there had been 37 deaths already and that by midnight last, 14 more were expected to die also had a bearing. Health Officer Pickle advises all persons to cover their mouths and noses with their hands or handkerchiefs when coughing or sneezing and not to expectorate on the streets or floors. This will go a long way towards preventing an epidemic here. The closing order will stop the work of the Red Cross and many patriotic and public activities and will entail a loss on the moving picture managements. Manager Percy of the Rialto Theater takes a sensible view of the situation and approves of the closing order of the city officials. He too believes that an ounce of prevention exercised now will prevent much misery and financial hardship later on. 
Mr. Percy holds that the picture theaters will only suffer a temporary loss, as when the danger is over and the closing rule rescinded, the public will be very picture hungry and will crowd into the theaters to make up for lost time. An intensely interesting letter was received by the Mail Tribune on October 12th from Dr. F.H. Porter, who is at Worcester, Massachusetts, describing the epidemic in the East, the symptoms and effects of the disease, preventative measures, and the like, and advising that Medford take precautions. The letter reads in part as follows. Your issue of September 28th contains an editorial on the subject of Spanish influenza and from its tone will lead your readers to believe that the disease is not a serious one. Now, do all in your power to eradicate that belief. It is the most terrible epidemic ever visiting America, and is very fatal. It is a new disease caused by a heretofore unknown bacilli, but has recently been isolated. The onset of the disease is very similar to that of an ordinary attack of grip, but much more sudden and severe. Many cases begin as pneumonia, while others are sick several days before pneumonia symptoms appear. Those beginning as pneumonia are usually dead in 48 hours. The pathological findings in the dead are very similar to those found in the lungs of those dead from drowning, with the addition of erosions in the bronchial tubes. The vaccines and serums which have heretofore been used in the treatment of grip are worthless in this disease. During the past week, we have secured a small supply of vaccine made from the new bacilli and have inoculated some of the physicians and nurses who are in attendance on influenza cases, but up to date cannot say what the effect will be. Neither can we do so until the vaccine is obtainable in larger quantities, which will require several days longer. I'm in hopes I can secure enough to send some to the Medford physicians before the epidemic reaches there, and reach there it will, and then look out. The disease appeared in Boston early in September, and on the 14th there were 21 deaths. From that date to noon on October 5th, there had been 2,270 deaths, with over 80,000 cases. Throughout New England, this is the story told in every town. Every church, school, saloon, billiard hall, and theater are closed, and public gatherings are tabooed. To prevent congestion on streetcars during the rush hours of business, the health guards have ordered certain classes of business to open and close at certain hours. One sneeze, or a cough, in a crowded car from an infected person, and there are 20 new cases. The slogan in this section is, quote, cover that cough and sneeze. As the disease is an easy one carried through the air by the particles of sputum thrown off by a sneeze or cough, when it appears in Medford, if the health officer will isolate, isolate, and again isolate the infected, close the schools, churches, theaters, etc., fine everyone, who does not cover a sneeze or cough or expectorates on the street. You may escape a severe epidemic. Unfortunately, we did not escape the long reach of the epidemic, but to be certain, we fared far better than other communities. The flu ban and the ordinance requiring everyone to wear a mask when out in public spaces was removed on January 5, 1919, with the exception of dances, which the ban will remain in effect until further notice. And speaking of notices, one went out in the Mail Tribune on January 31st, 1919, to let us know exactly how we fared. The exceptional healthful climate of Medford and vicinity 
is shown in the report of Dr. E.B. Pickle, City Health Officer. Since October 12th last, the date on which the first case of influenza was reported, until today, Dr. Pickle's report reads as follows. 531 cases of flu with two deaths from flu proper and 16 deaths from pneumonia following flu in the city and six in the country around. There are only four cases of influenza in the city at this time. As if the epidemic and all its ordinances wasn't enough to keep our local authorities busy, we had a fair share of bootleggers trying their darndest to smuggle booze up and through here from California. Some tried to sneak just a few bottles past the detectives' noses, while others went through great pains to avoid the cops with copious amounts of giggle water. One such fellow was caught on January 9th this year. The headline? Bootlegger with 26 bottles of booze pays a $50 fine. After not having seen Medford, Jackson County, or Oregon for the past 15 years, a California resident, aged 50 years, arrived in Medford on passenger train number 14 this morning and dismounted from the train lugging a heavily laden telescope containing, presumably, his earthly belongings, but really containing a wealth of unearthly and unlawful property, full of much concentrated joy. The train was late in arriving, and Chief of Police Timothy, passing by, introduced himself and bade the visitor, who gave his name as Charles R. Jones, welcome to our fair city. He then escorted Jones to the police station, and there opened the telescope, whose contents was 26 pints of fair whiskey, methodically and neatly arranged with necks up. Mr. Jones explained that while he knew Oregon was dry, he was ignorant of the fact that it was bone dry, that he had some friends of the old days residing in or near Phoenix whom he had come to visit, and that above all, honest to goodness, he had the booze along for his own use to prevent a second attack of flu on doctor's orders. Chief Timothy in sheer good nature, took Mr. Jones to Prosecutor Roberts' office and introduced him to that official, where, after much converse about the old days and the stuff that cheers but muddles, they took the stranger over to meet another of our distinguished fellow townsmen, Judge Glenn O. Taylor, and introduced him. At the conclusion of the customary small talk on such occasions, Judge Taylor, stating that Oregonians just doted on California money, invited Jones to contribute 50 bones to swell the coffers of the state and county treasury, or else spend 25 days in closely inspecting the interior of the county jail at Jacksonville. Because of Jones' age and failing eyesight, the judge urged that Jones pay the money, which he did. Jones was, until recently, a taxi driver in Los Angeles from where he made visits at Bakersfield and Red Bluff, and then, filling his telescope, came to Medford. Had he not attracted the eagle eyes of Chief Timothy, the latter says that 
the Californian would have gone home with much Medford money, leaving his bottles in the care of sundry, thirsty local citizens. Now, some of these guys just hope for the best with their sneak, but others, like the gents in this next story, wired to the Mail Tribune early on this year, can be awfully crafty and creative in their art of deception. You see, the Albany corpse turned out to be high-class booze. Albany has at last won a quad de guerre, says the Corvallis Gazette Times, as a coffin was being unloaded there today with four pallbearers properly craped standing by to lift the dear departed gently to the hearse provided. The baggage man, who, like the Lord, is no respecter of persons, bumps the coffin a little too strenuously with the result that something broke loose inside and a stream of liquid flowed from the casket. Until the aroma began to distribute itself in the murky atmosphere for which Albany is noted, even on the sunniest days, it was thought that this stuff was but embalming fluid. And so it proved, but the kind that quickly drew a crowd like unto that of flies about a molasses barrel. In the crowd came a policeman. He opened the casket right then and there. And instead of a flu victim, it was found that the casket contained enough booze to swamp any community in the Willamette, with the exception of Albany, which is in the non-sinkable class. Our dispatch does not say what became of the pallbearers, but it is probable they hurried away to get some more crepe, their sorrow having suddenly become overwhelming. And to said the flags on Albany's courthouse and city hall hang at half-mast. <laughs> now, all that nonsense, as entertaining as it all is, must be put aside for perhaps the most important story of 1918 came to us in mid-November. It was an event Americans prayed for, worked for, and our boys fought for. Are you ready to hear the biggest news story to grace a newspaper's pages in 1918? Well, then, here's the headline. The Germans sign armistice. Great World War ended at 11 o'clock, November 11th, 1918. And Medford noisily welcomes news of war's end. Although it was midnight when the glad news of the signing of the armistice reached Medford, Within 15 minutes, the streets were crowded with people celebrating the glad news. And within half an hour, over a thousand people were on deck with every known kind of noisemaker. The celebration started with the blowing of the fire whistle and was soon followed by the ringing of the fire bell and the ringing of many guns of all calibers. It sounded something like a battle on a small scale. The streets were crowded with automobiles, all blowing horns and klaxons. Some had tin cans and large sheets of tin tied on behind. And when making about 30 miles an hour, these contrivances made so much noise that the natives for miles around were wakened out of a sound, peaceful sleep. The first SP train to arrive on the scene 
got busy and sat on the whistle cord until the steam pressure was so low that there was no more sound and the crew had to steam up before the train could even leave town. The engine crew kept up the good work all the way to Phoenix, waking up farmers all along the line. People on the streets fairly went mad. Men, women, and children all joined in and the number of sore throats this morning well into the hundreds. Main Street is covered with shotgun wads and in front of the commercial club is what is left of a cap that was thrown into the air and shot to pieces. About 2 a.m., a live bunch from Jacksonville, headed by Louis Ulrich and Peter Fike, arrived on the scene and proceeded to show some of the real Jacksonville spirit that has been so much in evidence during the many war drives. This bunch immediately blocked Main Street with cars and started a war dance up and down the street, making everyone join in, and it was long after 3 o'clock before the excitement began to die down. The many cars thoroughly covered the town, and it is a safe bet that none of the residents slept through the celebration. The fire truck made the rounds with gong ringing, the cutout wide open. The glad news that the hostilities had ceased brought everyone out, and the noise and celebrating was still going on this morning, with machine loads of young people driving up and down the streets, ringing cowbells and beating on tin pans. It has been some time since there has been such a wild demonstration in our city, and it is safe to say that there won't be another until our boys come marching home. And then, look out! And there you have it, my friends. The year 1918 was a hard year for all, but our city, our county, and our country worked hard. And in the end, our resilient, strong, and patriotic spirit carried us through to victory. With all that into account, I think it's safe to say that this year, 1919 is going to be one of great opportunities and even better stories. As always, thank you so very much for listening. And remember, these news stories have been brought to you by the Mail Tribune, a weekly series featuring news items that were drawn from the archives of the Mail Tribune from 100 years ago. You can find more stories like this in the Mail Tribune 100 column in the local section of the newspaper or online at mailtribune.com. Also, the Mail Tribune has a plethora of other podcasts on a wide variety of topics, so be sure to give them a listen, too. And don't forget to follow us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and YouTube. If you like this podcast or if something you'd like to share with me, let me know in the comments or on Facebook. I would love to hear from you. Oh! And be sure to check in next week. I've got a great surprise in the works for you. Have a swell day. And I'll be here next week with more stories from the archive. Archive.